what this project is, is we just wanted to record everybody's salvation because Jesus um, comes to everybody so uniquely, differently, and personally that when we see the way he comes, it causes us to see him in, um, in new ways. And it enables us to know one another and how you came to Christ. And if you have never come to Christ before, today could be your day. Today's the day of salvation. And if you've never asked him into your heart, during the service as I'm talking, you can just ask him into your heart right there in your seat. You can say, Jesus, I'm asking you to come to my heart. I did that when I was 19 years old. I was a college student at Ohio State University. And there wasn't a big shebang. But over time, he started proving to me that he really heard that prayer, proved himself to me. And now 30 years later, here I am serving him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm going to do it till the day he comes back or the day I get to go see him. But he proved himself to me. So I invite you to do the same. Jesus is alive. He's real. And he's in love with you. And he's calling you to come to him. For us here today that are already believers, he's not only, has not only called us to himself, he has called us to be strong believers. And uh, I love the phrase, you know, though none go with me, yet I will follow. And uh, we just started a series in the book of Philippians. It's a phenomenal book. It's a book that zeroes in on how to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution. And the most remarkable thing, which causes you to know that God is engaged right in the center of it, is the theme of the book is not just suffering, but joy in suffering. Now, how does that happen? Joy is something we cannot live life without. Joy gives us energy. It gives us hope. It gives us... um, It gives us a view of God outside of the circumstances. The Bible even says that joy does good like medicine does. And um, uh, medical research has proven that joy and laughter actually helps heal the body and the mind and the soul. Laughter does good like medicine. And so it's amazing to me that we can learn how to have joy even in the midst of suffering. How many of you have had hard times or seasons in your life where literally it was impossible to find joy? Just be honest. How many of you have been through seasons of life where joy was nowhere to be found? We all have. And the truth is that trials can really zap us of joy, which is the thing we cannot live without. Difficult people, offenses, money struggles, unpleasant job situations, illnesses, diseases. And Jesus gives us some really bad news. In John chapter 16, Jesus Christ said these words. Are you with me on the PowerPoint here? We're all up in it. Jesus said this. In the world, you will have tribulation. Now, I got in trouble recently. There was a gal that left our church because she got offended. And um, recently she contacted me and sent me an email saying that uh, God showed her some things. And it was very humble and very wonderful. And um, since then, God's, God's revealed some things to me and I've forgiven and all that. And then this last little thing she said at the end. But in your membership class, you said that we will be offended at the Gathering Place Church. And you ought to be careful with your words. I thought, well, that was a little underhanded. In other words, 
because I warned everybody in the membership class, which I do every membership class, that you're going to be offended at the Gathering Place Church. But listen, I could say that about anywhere in life. You're going to be offended. And the point is, what I say is, it's not if you're going to be offended, it's when you are offended, what are you going to do with that offense? Because that will determine your relationships. That will, that, and, it's a, and it's a litmus test of your spiritual maturity. Offenses are. Because forgiveness is the point, right? Which is your spiritual maturity uh, um, uh, litmus test. And then the reconciliation. And then you get to stay together and your relationships are better after the offense than before they were during the offense, right? If you can work through the offense. So I'm trying to be pastoral. Let's have a strong church. Let's learn how to, you know, deal with offenses and forgive one another. You know, communicate conflict resolution. But she blamed her leaving the church on me because I prophesied that she would be offended. And yet Jesus said, offenses will come. So she should get mad at Jesus, I guess. Offenses will come, but woe to those who the offenses come through. Here he says something we don't want to hear in a faith community. And that is, in this world you will have tribulations. But here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to prepare us for the fact that we are going to have trials in life so they don't take us by surprise. Now, the vision here at the Gathering Place Church, the Lord gave us, is a thousand strong. It's not a thousand people strong, it's a thousand strong people. It's a thousand believers who are unashamed of the gospel, following Jesus with all the heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving Jesus, loving one another, and loving the lost. A thousand of those kind of disciples is what we're after here at the Gathering Place Church. So, we have to know how to endure trials successfully. Some things cannot be avoided. Sufferings, temptations, offenses. And here's what I believe. I believe we spend way too much time and energy focused on trying to avoid pain rather than learning how to be successful in it. To glorify God through it. To develop character because of it. And I believe this. I believe God is more, more interested in our character than our comfort. But Jesus gave us some good news in the second half of this passage. He said, not only in this world you have tribulation. See, we got happiness already happening. A manifestation of joy of the Holy Spirit is bursting forth in the church. I love it. The second half of the verse, he sets us up with the truth. We're going to have trials in this life. But then he says, but be of good cheer, which sounds oxymoronic. It sounds like a, a paradox, and it is outside of Christ. Because he says, be of good cheer, I. Everybody say I. I. That's the key, is Jesus. I have overcome the world. It seems impossible that we could have joy in the midst of suffering and trials. But the book of Philippians, you'll find this theme all the way through, the key is being connected to Christ in the suffering. And the joy of the Lord comes through us in the midst of the suffering. And all of a sudden, you can be the Apostle Paul, beaten and whipped and forsaken and in prison, writing a letter about joy to a church who has been persecuted and suffering to be joyful. And that's what we're studying over the next couple of months in the book of Philippians, how we as believers can endure trials in a godly way. Amen? So let's open up the book of Philippians today. Mark did a masterful job with the introduction of the book of Philippians last Sunday. And Mark and I are going to alternate every Sunday through the book of Philippians. Um, and so today is my turn. 
And he did an introduction to the book of Philippians, how the Philippian church came into existence. It's a tremendous study. And today I have the privilege of opening up the book of Philippians as I can get my iPad to open up to the book. So Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Finding joy in the midst of trials, we're going to start with verse 1. Finding joy in the midst of trials begins with an undying loyalty to Christ and his kingdom. Paul opens this letter with the word bond servants. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Listen, you know I'm really big on the sons and daughters theology. Who we are in Christ Jesus. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters. But when we miss this other dimension of our walking with Jesus Christ, and that is that we are also bond slaves, we do not tolerate suffering well at all. A bond slave in Jewish tradition was a relative who had endured financial bankruptcy. And so they would move in with a relative. And the relative would teach them financial stewardship for seven years. And that relative, the one that was financially bankrupt, moving into the relative's home, would become a servant in that house. And they were required to serve double than all the other servants in the house. And after seven years, they were to have come to a place of maturity where they learned how to deal with financials, finances successfully. But after the end of seven years, if they had come to a place where they had so fallen in love with that household and they did not want to leave, but they wanted to be a servant forever in that house, then they would take an awl and they would drive, a, drive their earlobe to the doorpost of the house. And that was a sign like a wedding ring. That's a sign that I am now not only a servant because I had to be, I am now a servant because I choose to be. Because I so love this family. I so love what I've learned here. I've been ingrained, uh, um, engrafted into this household. I never want to leave. Now, how does this relate to you and I? You and I were spiritually bankrupt. When we finally came to a place where we realized we cannot figure out our spirituality on our own, we are spiritually bankrupt. Jesus calls us spiritually poor. We come to Christ Jesus, and he welcomes us into his house. And he begins to steward us and mentor us and help us get into our spiritual fulfillment and our wholeness. And at one point, the entry of that is Jesus chose us. He said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. So in the entry into the kingdom of God, into the household of Jesus Christ, he chose us. But at one point, we realize on a daily basis, we choose him. And we never want to leave. This is what happened to the apostle Paul. Paul says, I'm a bond slave. That means I am choosing Jesus Christ and I have chosen him forever. No matter what comes my way, I am all in for the king and his kingdom. That is why Paul was able to have this positive, enduring attitude no matter what happened to him. 
Even in the book of Philippi, how it began as, as Mark taught last week, when he is unmercifully and unjustly being beaten and thrown into the inner prison, when all he was doing was obeying a vision from Jesus Christ to go to Philippi to preach the gospel, instead of raising his fist at God and blaming everybody else, he decided, I'm just going to worship. How can you do that? In the midst of this unjust, painful situation, how can you respond to that situation by praise is because he had already died to himself. He had already decided, it doesn't matter what's happening to me externally. I am all about Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. And if somehow his kingdom can advance through me in this situation, so be it. The truth is, the farther away we get from ourselves, the closer we get to God. Do you know that Anton LaVey wrote a book in the 60s and it's called The Satanic Bible? And, you would, and he did everything. He reversed the Catholic Mass. Uh, they urinate in a cup and they drink it and they turn the cross upside down and they, they, they dishonor Jesus Christ in every way possible. And they also have Ten Commandments in the Satanic Bible. And he perverts all the commandments. Now, you would think with the first commandment of the Bible, the Holy Bible being, thou shalt have no other gods before me, you would think the first commandment in the Satanic Bible was you would have no other gods before Satan, right? But do you know what the commandment, first commandment is in the Satanic Bible? Do whatever makes you feel good. In other words, the devil knows that if we'll worship our flesh, we will destroy ourselves. He's not even mentioned in the Ten Commandments in the Satanic Bible. It's all about me, 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 me. Isn't that interesting? Satan knows human nature. And he knows if we'll just be all consumed about ourselves, there's no way we will serve and worship God. So Paul completely gave up his rights when he came to Jesus Christ. Look what the definition of a bond slave is, literally. Bond slave is the Greek word doulos, which means speaks of one whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. It is a slave who is bound to his master unto death. He is one who has only the will of his master in mind. A bond slave does not belong to himself. He has no rights. Look what he says in the book of Acts chapter 20. The apostle Paul says this. And see, now I go bound into the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the devil testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. Is that what your Bible says? Is that what your translation says? Hello? No. The Holy Spirit testifies in every city. You're so wonderful, Paul. You're so great. You're going to do great things. Oh, Paul, I see the glory of God all over you. No, here's a prophecy nobody would like to get at a prophetic conference or at your local church. Chains and tribulations await you, Mark. We would be like holding up the cross. But look at Paul's response to the Lord showing him what's coming his way. None of these things move me. Nor do I count, here's the key, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with, what? Joy. Joy. See, we're not going to get there without the previous phrase. I do not count my life dear to myself so that these external circumstances, I'm not even paying attention to them. I don't care. Why? I died when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I am all about him and his kingdom. 
So, these things don't move me. I don't count my life dear to myself. I finish my race with joy. You know, there's a scripture I hear quoted a lot out of the book of Revelation. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, period. Do you know there's a third part of that verse? And they loved not their lives even to the death. This is something the American church is going to have to grab a hold of. We will never make it through the anti and the the, uh, post-Christian culture that we live in now. We as believers, because preachers are so afraid of losing people and Christians have come so uh, sensitive about messages like this, sacrifice and lordship and suffering, we don't want to hear it. And so what we have done is produce such shallow Christians that when we now are in a culture that is anti-Christ and post-Christian, Christians can't handle the heat and the pressure. We're not developing strong believers. The apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Look at him. I do not count my life dear to myself so that, well, everybody say so that. that. If you're going to get to this joy piece, you've got to get this first piece. I do not count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy, which is the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, my whole goal is the kingdom advancement. Think about what you suffer in sports. Think about uh, how the two-a-days in football. Think about how grueling it is. Think about the pain that you're in the midst of. But you count it worthy of the goal that you're after, which is the win, right? Think about working out in the gym. I know I used to work out in the gym and I hated most every minute of it. You're working out and the pain, you're like, why in the world am I even doing this? And after I got her, I stopped, right? I mean, why? Why continue to work out once you've reached the goal of working out. <laughs> or what about studying? My gosh, man, studying. I see my wife study her brains out at midnight. She's studying. Why? Because she has a goal of helping third world children all over the world to, to uh, protect them from preventable diseases. She has a passion burning in her. So the pain right now is worth the end game. Our pain is to be the Christian walk And the end game is the glory of God that we do not quit. And even through the pain and the suffering of persecution and the trials we endure, it doesn't matter to us because our lives are advancing the kingdom of God. But if your attention is on yourself, pain is all you get. And there's not much payoff. And you end up in self-pity. Can I hear an amen yet? I am preaching to believers, right? I just want to make sure who I'm talking to. I think it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what Oswald Chambers says in My Utmost First Highest. Has that break come? All the rest is pious fraud. The one point to decide is, will I give up? Will I surrender to Jesus Christ and make no conditions whatever as to how the break comes? I must be broken from my self-realization. And immediately that point is reached. The reality of the supernatural identification takes place at once. And the witness of the Spirit of God is unmistakable. I have been crucified with Christ. The passion of Christianity is not that I deliberately sign away my own rights and become a bond slave. I'm sorry. 
The passion of Christianity, I shouldn't say that because that's the exact opposite of my entire point today. Let's re-say what Oswald said. Sorry, Oswald. The passion of Christianity is that I deliberately sign away my own rights and become a bond slave to Jesus Christ. Until I do that, I do not begin to be a saint. Well, look at what verse two, uh, the end of verse one says in Philippians, we're still in Philippians chapter one, verse one, by the way. <clears throat> it's going to be a long series. <laughs> Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, to all the saints in, now watch, the, watch, the, uh, watch which comes first and second. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. You and I are first in Christ, then in San Diego. He didn't say to the saints in Philippi. He said to the saints, the set apart ones. Saint doesn't mean you did great stuff, you died, and they decided to make a statue of you. That's, that's the religious interpretation of a saint. A saint is short for sanctified or set apart to a, to a divine purpose. So you set yourself apart to Jesus Christ and his purposes. That makes you a saint. Are you with me? You're set apart. My computer is set apart from my children. It is sainted, sanctified for my purposes. Mess up my, my wife's computer. Download stuff from your cartoon websites and all the bugs that come in. We have to hire somebody to come clean her computer. Don't touch my computer in Jesus' name, right? <laughs> my computer is set apart for the purposes of the God. I say my iPad is not a toy. It's a tool I need for work. Leave it alone, right? It's sanctified. You are a tool. <laughs> you're a tool. You, you are a tool for God, for God's purposes and his kingdom advancement. Should have stopped. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 29. God has generously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but also of suffering for Christ's sake. This brings us to verses two through five. Look, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Verse three, verse four, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the beginning until now. The first point is that you and I are bond slaves, sainted or set apart for Jesus Christ, Christianity is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ and his kingdom, and we will die for it. That's a true believer. That's the beginning of learning to how to find joy in the midst of suffering, because there's a greater purpose to it than us just getting out of the suffering. Paul says in the book of Philippians, I'm in prison, but hey, you know what? It's actually working out for the good. Why? Because even the prison guards are hearing the gospel. It was his whole focus. How's this going to advance the kingdom of God? That has got to become our mentality, family of God. How is this suffering I'm in right now going to advance the kingdom of God? How is it going to glorify God? Not, why is this happening to me? That's just, woo, going to take you down a dark alley. Secondly, it is coming to the place where you understand that when he says the fellowship of the gospel means the fellowship of of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. If you're going to share in the gospel, the good news, that means you're also going to share in suffering, period. I remember that uh, Hope and I uh, have a good friend, Ted Haggard, who was a pastor in Colorado. Some of you may have 
heard of him because of his moral failure. But he's a great man of God. He grew a great church from scratch. And uh, we love him. And uh, I remember one year I was thinking, are there any mega churches in the world, in the United States of America, who are preaching this kind of stuff and people actually want to hear it, therefore they have a mega church? Or has everybody compromised the gospel to gain crowds? I really wanted to find some guys who are really, and gals, who are really preaching the gospel and does America still want to hear it? So I thought, you know, his New Year's message, surely if he's going to do something shallow and fluffy. It's going to be on New Year's, right? Because everybody wants to hear five ways to lose weight on New Year's in the name of Jesus, right? I mean, because that's the American gospel. How can it benefit me? So I get on his New Year's message and he says, people always ask us around New Life Church here, why is your staff so happy all the time? Why are they so joyful? And he says, so I started meditating on that and I came up with the answer and that's my message today. My message today is we have learned how to embrace suffering. crickets. The way we view suffering and trials will dictate whether we live with joy or sorrow in them. Look what Paul says in 2 Timothy. But you have followed what I teach, the way I live, my goal, my faith, my patience, my love. You know I never give up. You know how I have been hurt and have suffered as an Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. I have suffered, but the Lord saved me from all those troubles. Now, we have to see here that though he suffered, the Lord did deliver him. But he suffered. It wasn't an immediate deliverance. And then he goes on to say, everyone who wants to live as God desires. This is scripture, by the way. Everyone who wants to live as God desires in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a letter that uh, another pastor friend of mine, Rich Nathan, who's a pastor of a vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. It's about an 8,000 member church. Uh, It's so interesting to me. Whenever I go to, when I feel like God is leading me and leading the team here to teach something to the body, he confirms it in such clear ways. And the very week that I was studying this on suffering and knowing that it would not be very popular, but it'll be good for us, I got a letter sent to me from Rich Nathan, a letter that he sent to his congregation, a congregational letter to his 8,000 member church. I want to read it to you. And he's not talking about this church. He's talking about his church. So as I read it, put that into context because surely he's not talking about anybody here. Rich Nathan's congregational letter. If you engage in Christian leadership for any length of time, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a short letter, it's about three paragraphs, so just listen. If you engage in Christian leadership for any length of time, you're going to have people problems. Put 10 or 15 adults together, try to provide pastoral care for them, and what you might discover is that there will probably be one couple at least whose marriage is on the rocks, a few people who hate their jobs, a single mom with three kids struggling to hold things together. You will almost certainly have in your group a few people who make commitments and then think nothing of breaking them without any notice. Someone might, we thought it was a California thing, Mark. This is Columbus, Ohio, right there in the heartland. Someone might make a commitment to do childcare and to bring snacks and then simply don't show up. 
In the average group of adults, there will be at least one exceptionally needy or disruptive member. There might also be several people who have significant issues of addiction or emotional problems, depression, anxiety, and the like. You can't be a Christian leader very long without having a children's teacher, worship leader, or even a small group leader feel that God is telling them to quit serving in the church. It is amazing how often God tells people to quit all forms of Christian ministry, given that there are so few quit verses in the Bible. But in America today, lots of people... Yeah, this is him talking to his congregation. But in America today, lots of people claim that God is telling them to quit serving other people and extending themselves, not just for a season, but for years. The longer I am in ministry, the more I admire people who simply show up. I've met dozens of people over the years who were who super excited, seemed to be everywhere in the church for about six months, and who were never heard of again. The people I respect the most at Vineyard Columbus are folks who show up week after week, year after year. Folks I know we can count on to teach a children's ministry class, to lead a small group, to usher people at a service, to help with the deacon activities of the church, or to counsel financially troubled people. To use a baseball analogy, it is the Cal Ripkins I most appreciate. The guy or gal who, who, with a lunch bucket, shows up every day for work, not flashy, but faithful. When you lead a small group or indeed when you're involved in any ministry that involves people, it is easy to become weary, cynical, and hard. How do we stay soft to God and to people? How do we persevere in Christian service? I believe in America we have lost sight of one central truth that runs through the whole of the Bible and the whole of history, and that is that life is supposed to be hard. Do not for a moment allow yourself to succumb to the unbiblical, unreal American ideal that life is supposed to be pain-free, comfortable, and easy. I can't tell you how many people I talk with who complain about a difficult circumstance in life and the underlying presupposition of the complaint is that the difficulty I'm experiencing is wildly abnormal. Life is supposed to be hard. Difficult people are normal. People who break commitments are normal. Not getting your way is normal. Being frustrated is normal. Being misunderstood is normal. It is normal for things in this world to break down. It is normal to have a piece of equipment or technology fail to function. It is normal to misplace things. It is normal in this world to not have enough money to buy everything that you want. It is normal to be hassled at your job. It is normal to have less than perfect relationships in your home. Extended family problems are normal. Dealing with ridiculous bureaucracy is normal. All of these things are normal. And here come some verses, guys. He says, Jesus said, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He says, why don't we paste that on our bathroom mirrors as a promise for each day? Likewise, the Apostle Paul said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Peter puts it plainly when he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange thing were happening to you. I like the way the message version of the Bible says it. Friends, when life gets really difficult, don't jump to the conclusion that God isn't on the job. Instead, be glad that you are in the very thick of what Christ experienced. This is a spiritual refining process with glory just around the corner. He goes on to say, what I observe in America, however, 
is alongside of this extraordinarily unbiblical and unrealistic idea that life is supposed to be pain-free is an incredible fragility in most people that I meet. People today are exceptionally fragile. We become the eggshell generation. Unlike our depression and World War II generation, we simply cannot bear any weight at all. We cannot handle any hardship without squawking and complaining to everyone. We collapse easily. Our marriages collapse easily. Our faith collapses easily. We are easily wounded. We easily quit. We easily throw in the towel. Just think about the people you know who have quit your group, who quit the church, whose feelings have been ruffled over the most minor offenses, and we leaders end up having to apologize for such trifles. So how do you keep going day after day and year after year, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot? And he says, understand that the one of the main callings of the Christian is perseverance. Now this gives us a completely different view, a completely different lens to look at Christianity through. And it's the exact same lens that the first disciples looked through. We have to understand as the American church how far we have gone from the true definition of Christianity. It's not trying to be pain-free. Is it accepting the fact that pain is here to stay? How do you behave in the midst of it? That's the question. Now, certainly, I'm all about deliverance. Certainly, I hate pain. Certainly, I don't like trials and tribulation. But I want to say it again. Rather than us spending so much time trying to avoid pain and suffering, why don't we spend more time focusing on how we go through a trial rather than, rather than why we are going through the trial? I think this would make us strong Christians. Amen? Amen? Absolutely. And that brings us to verse 6 in Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to close with this. Verse 6. That's why Paul says to this church that was suffering persecution, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, he didn't say around you, he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Finding joy in the midst of trials not only begins with an undying loyalty to Christ and his kingdom and understanding that suffering is part of our Christian calling, but thirdly, valuing what God is doing within you more than what he is doing around you. See, outside of Christ himself, this was Paul's primary joy. Outside of Jesus Christ himself, this was Paul's primary source of joy, the spiritual growth and maturity in himself and in his disciples. This is what brought him the greatest joy, seeing his sons and daughters becoming like Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna say this big mouthful to us today. I'm going to have you put this quote. If we don't find joy in becoming like Jesus, we have missed the entire point of the gospel. And that came from John Ettore. So you know it's profound. (laughs) If we don't, if our joy is not found in becoming like Jesus Christ, we have missed the entire point of the gospel. We are being made into the likeness likeness of his son. And the Bible says that Jesus became the captain of our salvation through sufferings. Therefore, it says in the book of Hebrews, as sons and daughters, we are through the same process of sanctification. 
Therefore, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Right there in the book of Hebrews. In other words, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters if we will learn how to endure suffering the way he did so that we can become like him. That's the point. It's not getting our prayers answered. That's secondary to the primary point of Christianity. The primary point of Christianity is is reflecting the likeness of Jesus Christ and that cannot happen without suffering. So, look what Paul says. Dear brothers, or this is what James says, the brother of Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble comes your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. You know, all of us know that this is just an insane verse, right? I mean, you think he's just lost it. He finally lost it. Why can you count, why can James count it great joy when these people are suffering? For you know that that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, which means you and I can let it not grow by complaining in the midst of the suffering. The endurance does not grow when we fall into the pit of self-pity. Character is not being developed. Endurance is not being developed. He says, let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What that means is this. The more trials you and I go through, and the more we go through them well, we develop the ability to endure trials in life. And the only way we develop, and the, 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 the essence of being able to, develop, to uh, endure those trials is we have developed character inside of us. How many of you know that the small trials in your life used to be big. But after you've been through some hairy ordeals, you look back at the trials that used to be big and you're like, that's nothing. Put it in shallow terminology, you know, you have to get up at six o'clock every morning, right, for work. Some of you five, some of you four. But then when you get to get up for your new job at seven, that's nothing. But then you talk to somebody else, I gotta get up at seven o'clock for work. And you're like, man, that's nothing. That's what I'm sleeping in. Well, it's because you used to have to get up at four or five, right? So you develop the ability to make yourself get out of bed at four or five o'clock in the morning. Seven o'clock is easy. This is a shallow example of what the Christian life is about. It's kind of like the time that this little uh, seedling popped up, a little oak tree seedling popped up right next to a big oak tree. And the little seedlings looked up and went, I'm an oak tree, I'm an oak tree. And the big oak tree, big oak tree said, you're not an oak tree yet. A couple of months passed by, sprouted a little branch. I'm an oak tree, I'm an oak tree. And the big oak tree looks over and says, you're not an oak tree yet. Grows up a little more, pop, pop, a couple more branches, leaf here and there. I'm an oak tree, I'm an oak tree. And the big oak tree says, you're not an oak tree yet. And then the storm hits that force, man. I mean, trees are bending back up by the roots and branches flying everywhere. And whew, after the storm was over, there's that little oak tree still there. And the big oak tree says, now you're an oak tree. <laughs> you never know what's going to do it in a sermon. I think that one... I think I just preached until I hit pay dirt. There it was right there. 
Now I'm going to wrap it up. This is why sports is such a great illustration for what I'm talking about today. And I'm going to take just a couple minutes to wrap this up. I was watching the first game of the NBA Finals, Go Heat. And at the beginning of it, it says, when pain becomes joy. I thought, oh, that's perfect. That's what I'm preaching. When pain becomes joy, which is reaching your goal. Paul uses sports as a metaphor for the Christian race. Because sports is not just about getting the ball into the hole. It is about endurance. It's about digging deep. It's about tenacity. It's about endurance. It's about suffering through it. It's about digging deeper than you think you can dig and come out with a victory. That's why Paul says our race is like athletes. Though they do it for a perishable crown, our race is for an imperishable crown. And he says, therefore, do not give up. Look what he says as we're coming to a closer. Look what he says. Well, first I want to say this. As we learn that trials can produce Christ-likeness and we begin to value this more than the outer life, we are on our way to becoming the kinds of sons and daughters God is looking for. Children who can not only weather any storm that comes their way, but also those who can find joy in the midst of trials through contentment of character and the deep satisfaction that they are glorifying God with their attitudes and behavior. This is the biblical brand of Christianity. You can have another brand of Christianity, but it will not make you a strong believer. Christianity will be a miserable life for you as a shallow follower because the storms of life will whip you around. And rather than asking, what is it you want me to do in this trial, God? How can I make this trial glorify you? You're stuck with the question of why. Look at these last two verses. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas told the good news in Derbe and many became followers. Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, making the followers of Jesus stronger and helping them stay in the faith by saying, we must suffer many things to enter God's kingdom. That's how they made strong disciples. They preach the gospel, they get saved, and it says, and then they made them stronger by telling them, you're going to suffer. Finally, Peter says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. I used to jump over that verse. When I was a younger believer, I was in the faith movement, I jumped over scriptures like that. They're negative confessions. Although Peter's the one confessing it by the Holy Spirit, it's negative. But after you live long enough and you realize, oh, you know what, trials are here to stay. Maybe I ought to learn something about how to endure trials. After you suffer a little while, God will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever, ever. Amen. He that has begun a good work in you is going to continue that good work until Jesus returns. I just want to say, family of God here at the Gathering Place Church, let's be a strong church, not a weak church. Let's give glory to God with the way that we endure struggles and trials and suffering let's find christ in the midst of the suffering mark said something to hope just this week 
when she was pouring out her heart about something she's gone through that was, she said this is probably the hardest thing I've ever gone through. This is the hardest test of my Christian faith. And as, as, she, was, as she was pouring out her heart, Mark said, I don't want to sound trite, but I just want to say to you, you are closer to Jesus right now than maybe you've ever been because you are learning how to share in his sufferings because he too is mistreated and feels the pain you're feeling. See, that's the intimacy point with Jesus Christ. It's not all yay and the set of steak knives. It is suffering. And as you're suffering in that trial, instead of wah, wah, it's Jesus. Give me your strength, which is in the same Bible, the same book. I can do. Say it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can we all stand, please? I want us to suck every benefit out of the book of Philippians as we can, church, over the next couple of months. Let's read this book. Let's find Christ in the midst of trials and suffering. God's going to deliver us. He always does. But until that deliverance comes, what are you going to do? It's a moment for Christian character. So let's come to God together today. Father, we ask in this church body that you forgive us for our whining. We can't whine against the backdrop of Paul and Peter and James and all the men and women who have gone before us who have been persecuted and suffered. Even their very lives were taken and yet they glorified you all the way to the end. Lord, may this church shine with that kind of loyalty to you, Jesus, and to your kingdom. Now with your eyes closed as you're connecting with Jesus right now, if you've been the whiner, if you've been the complainer, and this message has just struck you to the core. Would you raise your hand right where you are and say, that's me. I have been the one that has been complaining, asking why, rather than what. Go ahead, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Anybody else? Come on, you guys. God's making us strong here today. That's what this is about. Man, another 20. Okay, most, so many. Okay. Right where you are, I'm going to give a moment. Would you just confess that to the Lord? Just say, Lord, I've been wasting the trial. Just say it to him. I've been wasting what you're trying to do in me. And today, my paradigm is shifting. I ask you for deliverance. And I believe you for it. But until the deliverance comes, may the way I go through this trial my attitude, my behavior, my prayers, may they bring glory to your name. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, we invite you to come down front when the prayer teams come down. The prayer teams, you come down right now and uh, we invite you into this definition of Christianity. It won't be easy, but you will find your destiny. You'll meet Jesus Christ. And as you endure with him, the day you die, you'll spend eternity with him in heaven and it'll all have been worth it. If you've this message grabbed your heart 
And you, you don't want to just walk out of here and for it to go, pfft. And you lose, a whole, lose your grip on this. Would you come down front of these prayer teams and, hey, you know what? Maybe you can pray for some of these prayer teams because this message is for everybody. Amen? So if, you, if, this, if this really got you and you want to go deep with this and you want to be that kind of a Christian for the rest of your life, then I want you to move out from your chair and you come down here to these guys and say, I got to get a hold of this. I want to be a strong Christian. And for the rest of you, may you be the light of the world the salt and light of the world as you leave today, as you leave this place, this locker room, this, this workout gym, this spiritual environment where you are learning how to be the salt and light of the world. As you walk out those doors, you've just entered the mission field. Be the salt and light of the world. No matter what comes your way this week, be loyal to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name. God bless you.